Well, folks, great to see you this morning. Let me encourage you to have that um, passage in Ecclesiastes 5 open in front of you. So important that we have God's word open in front of us so we can hear his voice as he speaks to us uh, today. And let me uh, encourage you with those verses open to entertain a question as we begin. I wonder how many, on average, right, I wonder how many words you reckon that you speak in a day, right? How many words on average do you reckon you speak in a day? Just get that number in your head. And here's what I want you to do for 10 seconds. This shouldn't take long. Share that number with the person next to you, okay? Go for it. How many words on average do you speak in a day? Okay, so on average, the average person, now I have no idea how they work this out. I love to think it's somebody following somebody on average, and with only those wee clickers, and just clicking. The average person speaks 10,000 words a day. Anybody get close to that? Some of us. So some of us will be on either side of that, because remember, this is an average. But when you consider 10,000 words, that is a lot of words, isn't it? And I remember when I was growing up, the BT advert that said, it is good to talk. And we kind of embrace that, don't we, as human beings? 10,000 words a day. We've got people in our lives who love to talk. Okay, give you an example of this. I have a good friend, and I heard recently that the people he used to work with affectionately nicknamed him Duct Tape. Okay? (laughs) Because after spending a little bit of time in his presence, they just wanted to duct tape his mouth. Okay, affectionate. The guy's a legend. Okay, affectionate. But we all know people in our lives, don't we, that love to talk. And if you can't think of people, then it's probably you, okay? But (laughs) this is our world, our human existence. We speak on average 10,000 words a day. A lot of words, isn't it? Words, 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 words. Chat, 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 chat. Opinion, 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 opinion. Debate, 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 debate. Question, 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 question. Words, 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 words. And the thing about this passage today is that we're going to zoom in on a generation of God's people who are being told to make their words few. Make their words few. Now here's Solomon writing in this book of Ecclesiastes. And here he is, if you want to picture him, he's like a good grandpa. He's sitting down gathering his grandkids, saying to them, this is what life has taught me. And he's trying to wrestle, and we've seen this in the opening couple of chapters of Ecclesiastes, he's kind of trying to wrestle some kind of purpose out of the things of this down here existence. Remember, he was telling us, wasn't he, chapter 2, wisdom and power and money and opportunities and buildings and stuff and sex and relationships. And what did he conclude? He concluded that it was all vanity. I don't have my candle up here today, but if I did, this is what he's talking about, right? The smoke that comes out of a candle when you blow it. This is what he's concluding about life. It's, it's, it's here today and gone tomorrow. It's fleeting. It's, it's frustrating. It's temporary. Every time that you think you've got life tamed, that you've got life sorted in a box, somehow it manages to spring out and elude you. It's amazing, actually, friend. Let me just say that the amount of people have come up to me over the last few weeks and and have said that what Solomon is saying here about life is really connected with our modern day living. That this is what life is like under the sun. 
In chapter 5, he, he kind of turns his thoughts to God. And he's not just thinking about God. He's watching the people around about him, his generation of God's people. And he's, he's thinking about how they are relating and viewing God. Okay, so here's this, this man, Solomon. And remember who he is. He was the guy that, that oversaw the building of the temple. This place where God said, I will be there. My presence will be there. And, and you can check this out afterwards. You get Solomon's prayer of dedication in Second Chronicles chapter 6. And it, it begins with the word, words, Lord, there is, there is no God like you in heaven on earth. Even the highest heavens cannot continue, let alone this temple that I have built. So Solomon is a guy for all his faults, and he's a fascinating character. For all his faults, he is a man who understands the greatness of the gods who Israel worship, Yahweh. And he looks out in a generation of God's people, and he knows that their view of God, the Lord, is way too small, and their view of themselves is way too big. And the thing is, it's how does Solomon know that? Well, it's their words, 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 words. They seem to be revealing what's going on in their hearts. And what's going on in their hearts is they have got a very shallow view of the God that they are coming to worship. And so when Solomon calls for fewer words, let your words be few. He's not calling for some kind of game of charades, right? It's not Christmas time. He's not saying reduce your word count like you would do in an essay if you're a student. You look at the word count at the bottom right. What is it? He's not saying get it down. What he's calling for is a posture. When you come before the God of the universe, this is about worship. And Solomon's calling God's people to embrace and to enjoy and to be transformed by a glorious picture of the matchless majesty of the God that they come to worship. Because there is none like him in heaven or on earth. And there is no way that the highest heavens could contain the glory of this God, let alone the temple that Solomon has built. And he wants that understanding, or this big view of who God is, to filter down into every area of their lives. Every area, not just when they come to do the religious things. Every area of their lives is to be saturated with a big view of who this God is. So Solomon's going to say, and this is our two things for this morning, okay, or this afternoon. Two things to this generation. Here's the first thing he's going to say. He's going to say, your worship is too casual. Your words are too casual. So come with me to the text and see what he writes at verse 1. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of the Lord. You see it? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So he's picturing here people who are making that pilgrimage to the temple. The place where God dwells in the holy of holies. The, the place for sacrifice for sin is, is made, where it's atoned for, where God's word is, is taught. The people are, are told how they should respond to who this God is, how he wants them to live, where prayers are offered. This is the temple, and Solomon says, see when you go there, see when you walk there. You've got to watch how you walk. Right? We do this all the time. You think about it in your life. You think, when was the last time you watched how you walked? We went to St. Andrew's Beach with the, the girls last week. 
and we, we started walking over the rocks. And there's, you've done this before, that you look out and there's seaweed everywhere, there's barnacles which are going to cut your feet if you've got open feet, there's, there's seagulls flying about trying to get us, get the, the food that we've just eaten, there's rock pools everywhere, arguably not my smartest move as a parent to take the girls over the rocks, okay? But I tell you what, see when I knew that that was there, I was watching how I was walking. So the two girls in my hat, I was watching how I was walking. I was watching how they were walking. And we do this in our lives, don't we? We watch how we walk. Those moments, right, that you take your time over. You think about each step. You're focused on what you're doing and you're thinking about where you need to be. And Solomon says it's got to be exactly like that when you come into God's presence. Imagine for them, they're thinking to themselves, hey, do you know what, en route to the temple, en route there, hey, we can behave however we want. It doesn't matter. We behave however we want. We can do whatever we want. And do you know what, when we get there, we'll kind of hit the switch and we'll kind of go do this kind of religious transformer thing and we'll hit the God switch. And by the time we get into the temple, then we'll be, we'll just do it. We'll just do this religious thing that we do all the time. Okay, we know the lingo. We know the right time to say amen. We know the right time to raise our hands in worship. We know the right amount to give. We know how to do the religious things. We have got this temple deal down to a T. We've got it sussed. And Solomon says, you see it in the text. He says, don't be a fool. You know, I remember when we were young, my brother and I, uh, my mum used to take my brother and I for a yearly trip to the orthodontist. And what used to happen is every time we used to get there, uh, Glasgow Dental School was a massive waiting room. And what she would do, we'd be sitting there, and she, she would, without fail, go into her handbag and pull out two toothbrushes and one of those little miniature toothpaste. And she would hand them to my brother and I, and she would say, would you go into that toilet and would you brush like crazy? Okay, so we'd go and do it. We'd go and brush, brush, brush like crazy. My gums would bleed, we would do the heart. And we get into the orthodontist room, and in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, do you know what? Because I've brushed like crazy. That's going to mask over a whole year of Astro Belts and chocolate bars and Iron Brew bars and ice poles that we have consumed. And I remember sitting there genuinely being amazed that every time the guy in the chair could see straight through it. Think to myself, this guy is good. They must have trained him well here. How has he seen through this? I must brush extra harder next time I come to the orthodontist. And Solomon's saying exactly the same here to this generation when they come to deal with God. Because this generation are treating God like he is a gullible dentist. And what does he call that? Do you see verse 1? He calls that. Them coming to do the religious things, he calls that the sacrifice of fools. You see it? Verse 2, he warns them, do not be rash with your mouth. Do not let your heart, and of course this is where our words come from, isn't it? From our hearts. Do not let your heart utter a hasty word. Why? Well, because second half of verse 2, God is in heaven and you're on earth. So what he's calling for here is them to embrace true wisdom. And true wisdom recognizes that there is a massive distinction between God and us. Right? God is infinite. He is infinite. We are finite. God is immortal. We are mortal. 
He is invisible. We are visible. God is spirit. And we are dust. We are flesh. God is almighty and we are weak. God is all-powerful and we are not. God is all-seeing and we are not. God is holy and we are sinful. God is pure and we are impure. God is unchanging and we change all the time. And God is faithful and we are unfaithful. And on 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 we could go. Solomon says true wisdom recognizes and John Calvin used to say this as well about true wisdom, that it recognizes who is the creator and who is the creature. And the thing about this generation is that they have forgotten the God who they come to worship. They have forgotten who he is and they have forgotten in light of that, they have forgotten who they are. And they come in with their empty platitudes. They go through their religious motions and Solomon pleads with them to draw near to God. And you see in the text, he pleads with them to listen and learn from this God. Now the word listen there, the Hebrew is, it's not this idea of kind of just listening. It is, it is hearing and doing, hearing and doing, right? We see this in the New Testament as well. James talks about it all the time. True faith, hearing, doing. Don't just be a listener, be a doer. Hear and do. So he wants them to adopt a posture that says, Lord, it's your truth. It is your word that I need in my life. As I see it and as I I hear it in the temple and by faith as I take hold of what you have said, I recognize that I so desperately need that word in my life. Friends, let me just ask you, when was the last time you thought that in your own heart? I find myself daily in this place of, Lord, I just need your word. I just need your word. I just need it in my life. I'm, I'm losing it at the minute. I just need your word in my life. It's your word that, what does the psalmist say in 100, Psalm 119? That your word is a lamp into my feet. And it's a light unto my path. Here's one of the things that we hear, one of the phrases that you will hear people in Scotland say at this time of year. What is it people say? What are the knights doing? They're fair drawing in. Okay, is your... Guest here, that's a Scottish phrase. It basically means it's getting dark, right? The nights are fair drawing in. And one of the things that you will see is when you go into the streets, you will notice a lot more cars with their lights on. Okay, we were coming home last night from Dalkeith. Just, we needed our lights. It was pitch black out there, okay? We need our lights. Driver, you'll know this if you drive your car. You need your lights, okay? This is what the psalmist is saying. I need your light. I, I, I need it for my path. And he's calling us all, he's calling himself, Psalm 119, he's calling God's generation, he's calling the whole world to see, friends, that the only light in this world is God's word. We need his light in our lives. I need your word to show me the way. I need it to help me understand. And I come to your word. These people come into the temple not to play games. They come here on their knees, waving the white flag of surrender that says, Lord, I need your word in my life. I am lost without it. This is what he's calling for from this generation because their worship is way too casual. And the second thing he says is that your worship is way too cheap, verses four to seven. Okay, and these people are walking in there and you'll see this in the, in, in the text, just scan your eyes over it, four to seven. What they walk in there and they make big vows to God, right? They promise that they are gonna do a lot for him. They pledge themselves to big 
big things. They make big statements about what they will do from God. But the thing is to see that when the time comes to make good on that word, they're nowhere. Do you see what they say? There must be some sort of mistake. That's the word in the passage, isn't it? Imagine this, was, imagine this is a bit like it. I don't know if you have this in your workplaces, but I remember every so often it just used to be a bit of paper on my desk and it used to come around quite often and it said, sponsor me. Right? You get those, like, the guy in your workplace is doing a 10K for charity and he's, he's looking for sponsorship money that comes around and you fill it in. Imagine it's a bit like this, okay? They're sitting there. Imagine you sit there and you scribble down your name and you write, your, write the amount next to your name and you say it loud so everybody can hear it. 600 pounds, right? And you score your name and you make sure everybody says it and you think, oof, wow, that's a generous, generous vow. But then imagine the time comes to pay and, and the sheet comes in and it's time to pay and you say, is that really, is that really my signature? That, that G looks way too small. 600 pounds, see if you notice where the decimal is on that, it's actually next to the six. It's actually that six pounds. Okay, you can imagine the kind of thing, this is what's going on here with this generation. Verse six, See, when the time comes to make good on the promises that they make to God, they say there must be some sort of mistake. Right? It doesn't sound like me. I think you must have got the wrong guy. That's, that, this doesn't sound like me. That's this generation. Again, think about it. What's going on behind these words? What's going on is that they have got a faulty view of who this God is. They are taking God and they are reducing him to how we human beings operate. Think about it. They're failing to see him as the God of all grace. And they're reducing him to our way of thinking that, that says that God must operate on a tit-for-tat basis. Right? I scratch his back, he scratches my back. That's, that's what must kind of happen here. And they're using God as a way of looking good in other people's eyes. And that's what they're concerned about. They're not concerned about looking good in the eyes of others. So this generation are known for making big promises, but not following through on those promises. And the thing is, before we quickly let ourselves off the hook here, friends, how often do we make and say big things about what we will do for God? And we never follow through on it. We have no intention of following through on it. Think about the thing, another way of thinking about it. Think about some of the things that we sing that we will do for God. Let me just encourage us to think about the lyrics that we sing in, in some of the songs. What are some of the things that we are saying to God? This is not casual, what we are saying. This is the God of the universe that we're dealing with here. And Solomon says, your words are way too cheap. Do you know how God feels about that? See what he says, verse 6. Why should God be angry at your voice? Why should he destroy the works of your hands? God takes this stuff seriously. Because if that's what you do, and says Psalm in verse 5, it's actually better that you don't vow and your mouth doesn't lead you into sin. So Solomon looks out on this generation and he says two things about their worship as it's revealed in the words, 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 words. He says, firstly, it's way too casual and secondly, it's way too cheap. They're complacent in their worship. But what does Solomon want to, what does he want to replace that complacency? Right? See this word at verse 7. What does he want 
there to be in the hearts of God's people. Verse 7, it's the word fear. Do you see it? Fear. This word that describes the disposition of the hearts of all those who understand and who have responded rightly to who the Lord is. Now this word fear, it's kind of like a Russian doll kind of word, right? There's lots of words inside it which kind of capture what it means. And so words like awe, okay, just stand in awe of who God is. You think of Isaiah 6, what Isaiah did as he came before the Lord. He wasn't aware of his smallness, he was aware of his sinfulness and like a holy God. Awe and reverence and devotion and adoration. We just love the Lord for who he is. And dedication, we want to follow his statutes and his ways. And obedience. All humility, reverence, devotion, adoration, dedication, and obedience. I, I love how C.S. Lewis, he's got, have you ever read C.S. Lewis, some of his Narnia stuff? He's just got a wonderful way of capturing truths. Have you ever uh, read how Aslan's described there? You see it says, is it Lucy and Mr. Tumnus who are describing Aslan? What, what is... What did they say to describe Aslan? Safe. Who said anything about safe? But he is good. To fear the Lord is to know who he is and to respond rightly to who he is. That is the the heart of the true worshipper, filled with fear of the Lord. So Solomon says to this generation, make your words for you. Make your words few. And of course, friends, right at the heart of the Christian faith is the true king who made his words few. Okay, what I do is every year I try and have a, take a new Bible. I make that my Bible for the year. Read it in my own quiet times. Take it with me on visits. Just got God's word Fresh every year, right? So this year I've got one of these red letter Bibles. I don't know if you've ever had one of these red letter Bibles. Can't seem the biggest fan because the whole thing kind of should be in red. But you get the picture, right? The words of Jesus are in red. So what happens is, I was reading recently, reading Mark 15. Right? If, you want to, if you've got a red letter Bible, you can turn it up. If not, you can check out in your time later. Okay, Mark 15. And all the way up until Mark 15, friends, there is red letters all over. In other words, Jesus is speaking a lot, right? And then you get to Mark 15, and the red just stops. It just stops. Okay, you get Mark 15, Jesus speaks as he responds to Pilate. Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says three words, you said so. And then you read of Jesus' trial. You read of his mocking. You read of his walk to the cross. You read of his crucifixion. And the next words you get in red are those words that Jesus cries out from the cross. My God, my God, quoting Psalm 22, why have you forsaken me? Right? In other words, Mark 15 is a chapter where Jesus says virtually nothing. Why? Cat got his tongue? Nervous? What's going on? Stage fright? No. It's Mark's way of showing his readers that Jesus, remember who he is, the one who was receiving all praise in heaven, left it to come to earth in our flesh. It's Mark's way of saying that he was completely submitted, completely focused on carrying out his father's will of reconciling lost and sinful men and women to himself. How was he going to do it? He was going to do it through his death on the cross. 
the king who made his words few, and yet, what a word, his blood speaks. To all those who would trust him for the forgiveness of sins, what a word over our lives his blood speaks. Because our sin had spoken words over us like guilty, deserving of wrath, and condemned. And Jesus, his blood speaks words over our lives of forgiveness and of grace and of righteousness and of life. The king who made his word few, and yet what a word. Friends, if we want to know, you're thinking about what to do with the fear of the Lord, if you want to know what that looks like, fully, perfectly, in a life of a human being, we look no further than to the life of Jesus. If you want to see what a life of fear of the Lord, what a, what a life of, of sacrificial obedience, of, of love for the Father looks like, look no further than the Savior. The King who made his words few. The King who demonstrated fear of the Lord. And, and therefore it's unsurprising that as we read about the early church in the book of Acts, this spirit-filled community that Luke tells us that the fear of the Lord was central to their existence as a community. Right, this is what Luke writes in Acts 9. They're on the screen, so you can look there and look it out in your own time later. Luke writes this in Acts 9. After a time of hostile persecution where the church are scattered, scattered everywhere, Luke writes this. It's his little status report. In the book of Acts, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. And then we get this, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Do you see how this posture of, of awe and of humility and of reverence and devotion and adoration, and dedication, and obedience, it characterized, was central to the life of these early Christian believers. They must be careful, must be careful at romanticizing the early church, right? You just need to read a few chapters earlier, and you see how wrongly these people got it, right? It's not romanticized this, but there are big lessons for us here. But here is a community with a big view of who God is, and a big expectancy of what the Lord will do by his spirit. This fear of the Lord was fundamental to their very existence as a community. And friends, as we bring it to a close today, the challenge for us as a community here is to ask ourselves individually, but to ask ourselves corporately whether the fear of the Lord is central to our life as a community. I think about it. I'd love us to be the kind of church, and I pray increasingly that we are increasingly that, that as people come into contact with us, that they understand and they see that they're coming into an orbit that says, these guys are something different. And do you know what? We are singing off different hymn sheets because we are characterized as a community by the fear of the Lord. So let's bring it home. Here, here's two generations of God's people we've looked at, Right? Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon's generation, and Acts, the early church. Let me ask you, which mindset reminds you of us? You know, I'm prepping myself for a 
couple of weeks' time where in an evening our doorbell will go all the time. Knock, 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 doorbell. And it will be children at the door. And they'll utter us that question that we always get at this time of year, right? Three words, trick or treat. Trick or treat. Now, they normally just, they don't, they just kind of don't say that anymore. They're just going to hand you a bucket, right? Give me some but Trick or treat. See, just as a way of, of lodging the challenge of this passage in our minds. And as we think about application in our own lives this week, let me just ask us, Ecclesiastes 5, the challenge here, friends, it's, it's fear or fool. Fear or fool. As we come to worship, Okay, as we, as we come to think about our whole lives and how we understand the God that we're dealing with here, as he's revealed himself perfectly in the person of his son. Friends, as we think about him, the challenge is fear or fool. Fear or fool. Who has held the oceans in his hands? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Who has felt the nails upon his hands, bearing all the guilt of sinful man? God eternal, humbled to the grave. Jesus, Saviour, risen now to reign. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our King, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. Friends, let me just, we're going to pray in a second, but let me just have a minute of silence and let's just make our words few as we respond to Ecclesiastes 5. And so, Father, in this silence, we bring to you our own prayers and confessions. And, Father, I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on your Son, Jesus, the one whose blood speaks a better word. And I pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord, all to have a big view of who you are. Would you blow our minds, Lord, as we come to comprehend even a bit more of something of your greatness. Lord, we we realize that we are hopelessly lost in ourselves. And we pray, Father, that through your word that you would raise our eyes by your spirit, to your greatness. And we pray this through the precious blood and the name of Jesus. Amen.